You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. theater lovers both out and proud and on the dl welcome to broadway breakdown a podcast discussing the history and legacy of american theater's most exclusive address broadway this series is called underestimated and it is covering shows that either had mild success when they first premiered on broadway or no success at all but have since gone on to have a long and healthy life i'm your host Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is another Broadway podcaster. You know him from the musical, a musical theater podcast. Please welcome Jeffrey Scott Parsons. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi. How are you, Matt? I'm doing grand, as you well know. Do you like to go I by do. Jeff or Jeffrey? It's Jeffrey uh, on the equity card, but you can call me Jeff. Wow. So intimate. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> on the equity card jesus i mean my birth birth certificate says matthew but my equity card says matt so everyone see there you go exactly just don't i I didn't realize it i didn't realize it until like the facebook era Mm -hmm. where i created social media accounts and it was all three names because like that's what was always i was always using professionally you know we got to do the three names sarah jessica parker brian stokes mitchell jeffrey scott parsons they all you know are kind of one and the same and uh and then i realized like at home everybody called me jeff so i was like oh i i may be painting a picture of myself that is not exactly authentic so the name is jeffrey scott parsons you can call me jeff I think that should be your full stage name, Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You should call me Jeff. Yeah, listen to a musical theater podcast. Uh, <laughs> I mean, on the other end of the spectrum, we have Audra Ann McDonald, who got rid of the Ann and became Audra McDonald. Yeah. Sherry Scott, who added the Renee. It's, 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 it happens all the time. I believe Norbert Leo Butts added the Leo because he couldn't just be Norbert Butts. Well, I mean, if anybody could pull it off. Yeah, it's him. It's him. Uh, Jeffrey. What musicale are we talking about today? We're talking about Seussical the Musical. 
the musical. I gotta say, if ever there was a musical, I might have said this already about Candide, but I think this is even more apropos. If ever there was a musical that lives up to the title and to the theme of this series, it is Susical. Awesome. Continue. I want more words. <laughs> it's well, so it's about shows that didn't have either had mild or no success when they first premiered on Broadway, but then have had a healthier life since. And I think Susical is the 21st century prime example of that, wouldn't you say? Mm. Well, yeah, I was just really interested because I've, I have never thought I'd hear Candida and Susical uh, mentioned in the same sentence. But this is actually a very good point because Susical was one of the biggest financial flops in modern musical theater history, like yeah. post 2000. And yet kind of everybody knows about it and has probably seen it. So mm -hmm. go figure, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, this is how everyone knows that Jeffrey has actually never listened to a single minute of Broadway Breakdown if he's surprised that I was able to link Candide and Susical together in one sentence. That Guilty. is how I do. Sorry, Matt. My bad. No, it's fine. Listen, Jeffrey, my episodes are long and people have lives to lead. Not everyone can <laughs> dedicate themselves to this pod. It's fine. You're like, um, the, oh, God. Oh, sorry. Never mind. I was about to make an uh, example of someone, but it turns out this person I was going to say isn't real. They're a fictional character in a book. So never mind. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. No, you're you're just like a fictional character in a book. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> the, uh, what a compliment. What a compliment. But no, I. Susical. I mean, it's Susical opened at the very beginning of the 21st century. So when it closed at a total loss of 11 million dollars, it was, I think, if not the most money lost in a Broadway musical at that point, it was like top five for sure. And mm -hmm. was definitely the most high, high profile for a while. And then musicals have come out since then that have lost more money, you know, as as a Spider-Man flew and then flopped. Uh, and then many other shows similar, but. Susical flew. So Spider-Man could flop is what you're saying. Susical laid an egg. So Spider-Man could crack the egg. And so, um, you know, Amelie could scramble the egg. It's things like that, you know. <laughs> uh, what is your history with Susical? Okay. <laughs> I'm excited about this. So <clears throat> for those who have listened to my show, one of the things that I that always comes up for some reason, I can't stop talking about it, is my mission that I serve for my church. Yeah, I was a missionary for two years. And during those years a lot of things happened, including 9-11 and Susical the Musical. So I came home um, into this like whole new world of cell phones and hip hop on the radio that I had not <laughs> encountered before leaving, quote unquote, the secular word world. When I came back, my mom, who is just the most amazing mother in the world, had collected cast albums of all of the shows that had premiered while I was on my mission so that mm -hmm. I could do like a crash course in all of the musical theater that I had missed while going out and serving the people of Texas. And one of those albums was Susical. Now, here's the thing. I immediately fell in love with the cast album. Because this should. score rocks. It's an incredible score. Aaron's and Flaherty can't write a bad opening number if their life depended on it. And I will also say that I have never seen a production of Susical that has made me as happy as I am when I'm listening 
to the recording. And yeah. I think that that is kind of an important little nugget to put in here with the success of the show is that the way that one stages it is completely dependent, I think, on whether or not the show is successful. Because as an album, as just songs in general, so clever, so melodic, it, it's fantastic. And so I am kind of in my heart hoping one day to stage a, a production of Susical that I'm really proud of. I think it would be really fun. It feels like a, a challenge I'm up to. Does this make I sense? I think it is too. Yeah, absolutely. My history with it, I was uh, a sensible 11 years old when I got to see Seussical on Broadway. And hey, that's awesome. I, the, I, we love being 11. But <laughs> I, was, get, I was getting into the Broadway scene at that point. Like I was getting more interested in sort of the happenings of everything, the casting, what was doing well, what was getting critically reviewed. And when Susical opened, I'm so, like, it didn't really cross my radar at first when it opened. I was very into the Full Monty because I'd seen that and that was sort of like the first big hit of the season, which then of course got eclipsed by producers. Sure. And when the producers opened, like that's all anyone talked about. And then I don't remember when the cast album came out, but it must have been somewhere around like February, I want to say, January or February, because they recorded it with the entire original company. And we'll go into sort of the stunt casting of it all later. But, you know, obviously by January, one major cast member was out for a month and then came back. So I got the cast album and like you, I fell in love with the score. And then I got I finally got a chance to see it because a certain teen pop star was in it. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> I was trying to tease it out for listeners. Are you kidding me? Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Carter. Carter. There's no shame. I don't know. No, no, pretty face. <laughs> he, 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 uh, wait. No, that's Jesse McCartney, isn't it? That's Beautiful Jesse McCartney. Song. Holy crap. I have my, my, my people mixed up. You're so right. Wow. However, Jesse McCartney is JoJo. That would be kill. That would that be awesome. good. That would be good too. I never thought I'd experience homophobia on this podcast, Jeffrey. And yet you mistaking Jesse McCartney and Aaron Carter. I've never experienced greater in my life. But yeah, Aaron Carter kissing Liz McGuire underneath that mistletoe, one of the greatest <laughs> pop culture moments of my childhood. Uh, <laughs> God. Uh, and then, of course, the love triangle of it all later on in his real life. But yes, he did the show and I got to go see him in it with Kathy Rigby and I adored it. I got the majority of the cast to sign my playbill. Of course, he did not come out because he was Aaron Carter and the girls would have torn him to pieces. Oh, sure. But I, yeah, I did get to see it. I've been obsessed with Seussical ever since then. I got to do it in college. I was in the ensemble, but, you know, nonetheless, it was still an enjoyable experience. And I agree with you. I think how you perform Seussical and also which version of Seussical you do, because there are three licensed versions of it now, uh, depends on, uh, it tempers the success of the show. Seussical also channels two major themes on this series that we've found so far. One is that the cast album has kept it alive mm -hmm. in the way that a lot of these shows um, have, like Mac and Mabel, uh, Candide, Pal Joey, uh, Sideshow, Parade. And then also the idea of when it got to Broadway, it was so um, 
there was such so much pressure to make it work for what was perceived Broadway standards, Broadway quality, that it actually got too big for what it should have been, which is something that we saw with Parade and saw with Smile and Carrie, you know, shows that should have been much more medium-sized, intimate or medium-sized, and then felt the pressure of being bigger and competing with the big spectacles and ended up shooting itself in the foot. But we'll get to all of that in just a second. But yeah, that is my history with this show. And I'm very pleased that many people have found its merit. Yeah. So did you know much about like the history of the show and sort of its troubles uh, up until now? Or was that something that you learned in preparation for this episode today? No, I have some friends who are in the OVC. And I, uh, David Engel was one of the Wickersham brothers. He's like the the crazy bass from Forever Plaid Land. Yep, I know that name very well. And so I always was, (laughs) since I'd known him, I'm like, tell me more Susical stories. And he'd look (laughs) at me like, why do you want to know about this? I'm like, I'm just really fascinated by this show. So I've, I've, (laughs) that's where, that's my fount of information. Shout out, David. (laughs) Hey, David. Uh, I have become friendly with Natasha Diaz and she has told me a few fun stories as well she was hers are more empathetic because that's the person natasha is she just feels so deeply so when i was asking for aaron carter's story she was like he was just so young and so tired she's like i would come up to be like are you sleeping it's like oh man damn natasha i was hoping for like a story of you know when hillary tuff came backstage and and made everybody you know brownies or something she's like no aaron was just so tired and 13 i was like god damn it for being empathetic anyway natasha diaz is so freakishly talented God, geez. I mean, when you think about who's in this cast, the stackedness that is this original company, uh, Natasha Diaz and Sarah Gettlefinger as two of the iconic bird girls, future Tony winner Michelle Pock. We have Janine Lamana, who was robbed of a Tony nomination for this show. Uh, (laughs) Kevin Chamberlain, who has a habit of getting nominated for musicals nobody likes. David Shiner. uh, I feel like there are more people. Alice Payton, Playton. Mm-hmm. Peyton, yeah, of um, Henry Sweet Henry fame and Carolina Change fame, of course, and Harada before she breaks out in Avenue Q, Casey Nicola, just Sharon Wilkins, Eddie, Sharon Wilkins, Eddie Corbich, Mr. Snow of my favorite carousel, just Tom Plotkin. It's so many, so many people. Uh, Jen Cody. It's like it's hit the hits keep on coming. So let's just get into it because as I famously told Jeffrey uh, before he came on this podcast, this podcast has no structure. There is no, <laughs> there's no ABCD. We just talk about what we talk about and, you know, let things flow. I mean, there, there are points we always try to hit, but I'm never like, and now we entered with this section because my brain doesn't work that way. I tried really hard once and it did not work mm. uh, for anyone who's new to the podcast. If you listen to the Sondheim series, the first couple of episodes, I try to go like song by song in order on the show and you know start off with like here's how it began and now here's the show and now let's talk about the legacy and then i got read for filth about it by a couple of listeners who were like just talk <laughs> like fine i'll just talk then so let's get into sort of how this came to be and jeffrey by all means uh sorry jeff you told me to call you jeff jeff you can call me jeffrey it's all good <laughs> jesus christ i have not had enough coffee today guys jeff feel free to chime in at any point if I say something wrong or something you want to add or just, you know, whatever, as we talk yeah. about the origins of the musical. So 
Seussical, as we mentioned earlier, written by Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty, best known for their scores uh, of Once on this Island and Ragtime and now Seussical. At this point, Seussical was their third, no, fourth Broadway musical because they had had Once on this Island trans playwrights. They did My Favorite Year, which also did not do super well. But I but also love. I like one song. No, I like two songs. I like the opening number. You're right. Uh, they are very good at an opening number, although. I don't remember if there is an actual opening opening number in Rocky. I just remember the the his first song, which is like my nose ain't broken yet. And I went, okay, well, that was the first draft. Um then they had Ragtime and then Susical. So they were like very much hot on the scene. They also had Anastasia, I think, had just come out. So like they were very much in demand. Uh the, the idea for songwriting team. Yeah. Yeah, like definitely the uh probably the biggest ones of the 90s at that point because Parade opened in the winter of 98 and closed in January, I think of 99. And then won the tone and then Jason Robert Brown won his Tony, but like, yeah, at, at the time that they started work on Seussical, JRB had not made his Broadway debut yet. So he was very much an underground, like if you only certain people knew him, same with um, Adam Gettle. I think there's anyone else in the nineties who was like comparable. But even just in just in terms of songwriting teams, you know, like in terms of teams, yeah, we were we were going into singer song or not singer, but composer lyricist lyricist all in one, kind of like the the Stephen Sondheim tradition, you know, or Jerry Herman, and Gone were kind of like the Candor and Ebbs, Lerner and Lowe's, with the exception of like Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, but unfortunately. Howard had passed away by then. So yeah. Flaherty and Aarons were really like the musical theater songwriting team um, of that time. Yeah. Well, you're, there, we don't, even today, we don't have real teams anymore. We have people who collaborate off and on, but we don't have, uh, I mean, I guess you could say Kit and Yorkie maybe, but they've only done, I think, two shows at this point, two or three shows. Uh, it's not it's not really like a Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. But even so, while they maybe weren't the most famous songwriting duo of the 90s, they definitely were the most prominent by that point, because even Candor and Ebb, I think they only had two musicals in the 90s and one was a hit and one was not Kiss of the Spider Woman and then Steel Pier. So they were kind of losing a bit of their uh, allure. And then, you know, the 90s was the end of an era for a lot of uh musical theater writers that we love like Cy Coleman Julie Stein died in the very uh early part of the 90s so like it, it was definitely the end of that era and Sondheim famously would you know really kind of retire from uh major works after passion with you know wise guys roadshow taking up the majority of the 90s for him and then just sort of going away but the idea for Seussical did not start with them the idea for Seussical began with one Canadian man his name, of course, is Garth Drabinsky. Uh, his name is out there right now due to maybe a musical that I've spoken of once or twice on this podcast. I will not speak of it anymore because I don't wish to uh, give it any more negative airtime. But he has a he has a musical that's out this season. Hmm, buddy, it that's yeah no not Buddy Holly the musical different musical. But he was looking for a new work to do after Ragtime opened in uh, the beginning of '98. And he had the theatrical rights to the Dr. Seuss books, all of the books. And he was like, I, we should make a musical out of this. Aaronson and Flaherty were like top of his list because of ragtime. So he reached out to them and they began to work. 
uh, and Livent Inc. was going to produce it. And they started collaborating with Eric Idle, he of Monty Python fame, to create some kind of linear story for this. And Idle wanted it to be very wacky and, you know, gadgets everywhere and, and who's a majigs and what's it's very it's basically like Eric Idle did the journey into the imagination ride at Disney World and got all the wrong lessons out of it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Journey into the imagination? Yeah. Absolutely. For anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, there is a ride at Epcot. It's called Journey into the Imagination with Eric Idle and um whatever that purple dragon's name is. Was it Gizmo? Something I don't know. Something like that. I yeah, definitely have like him. I can look him up right now on my Disney emoji blitz if you want. You please Cause, do. So because I uh, here, keep talking. I'll look at it. Yeah, I want to I want to properly drag that creature for filth. And I can't do that if I don't know the name. But every time I've been on that ride and I, yes, I've put myself through it three times. It is a it is a ride that definitely is trying to be. How do you do fellow kids? But it's just so cringe. And, you know, they try to make it funky and weird and Eric Idle is on the ride. And it's just, it, he took all the wrong lessons from doing that ride. He was like, oh, yes. So more of that cringe stuff. And eventually, Anderson and Flaherty were like, that's not the direction we want to go. We want to make a more heartwarming tale that's uh, simplistic and theatrical. And while they're working on it, uh, Garth Drabinsky gets arrested because of um, cooking the books at Live and Inc. Because while shows like Ragtime and Showboat and Kiss of the Spider-Woman said that they were doing well financially, the truth is that they were not because they were very expensive to put up, very expensive to run, and near impossible to make any money back. So even though Showboat ran for two and a half years and had three different tours uh, across the country, it most likely did not make any money. Ragtime. Figment. 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 Oh, of figment course. Of figment your... of your imagination. Hello. Yeah, Sorry. Exactly. Continue. Oh, actually, I do want to just say about live end. Yes. The difference. And th- I learned this fr- when I ooh, excuse me. I learned this from um, David Loud, who I had on my show. And he mm. was the original musical director of Ragtime, is that it wasn't so much that he was cooking the books as that he wasn't divulging specific numbers to his shareholders because live end which is different than most producing entities, is a publicly hold or was a publicly Mm -hmm. held company. So in order for it to work as such, a lot of information has to be given to all of the shareholders. And that is the kind of information that he was kind of reserving for himself and moving around so that he could pay for these huge two-page advertisements in the New York Times. And everyone's like, how can he even afford to do that, right? Like, I think that the Broadway community in general and and producers specifically were like, huh, I don't know how he's doing this. And the reason, the way that he did it was by not telling the shareholders what money he was using and where. Yeah, there was a lot of raising money for one show to start paying off the bills for other shows or just not paying the bills at all. There, If you want to learn more about it, there is... There are a bunch of chapters about it in the Michael Riedel book. Uh, I think it's called One Singular Sensation or something like that. But it's his it's his follow up to Razzle Dazzle. And there's a lot of financial jargon that I read and tried to absorb, but my brain can only hold so many terms. But yes, <laughs> what Jeff what Jeff has said is very true. He also, I mean, Broadway 
turned a blind eye to a lot of it, at least the creative side, because he was so good to a lot of his creative teams. He gave them time. He gave them space. He paid them very well. He paid his actors very well. And so when he was arrested and tried, he tried to get a lot of performers to speak on behalf of his character. Like, I think they tried to call in like half the cast of Ragtime and Showbo. They wanted to get Stritch to come in to speak on his behalf. Because like, well, if Elaine Stritch likes him, it's like, no, he just paid Elaine Stritch handsomely. So, you know, people, of course, would like him. But you learn, you see with Susicle sort of an example of just kind of how his generosity to creatives got him into this kind of trouble because he paid Aaron's and Flair to Aaron's and Flair her tea half a million dollars in an advance uh, for writing the show, just for developing it. And then they were each uh, going to be paid, I think something like $90,000 for when the show opened in Boston. And then another 90,000 for when it opened on Broadway, in addition to any royalties they were going to get. Uh, so like these two were already getting nearly a million dollars before, uh, if even if this show flopped, which it did. And that's, that's a lot of money for uh, something that's not a guarantee. But there was the idea that this could be another Lion King because everyone loves Dr. Seuss and he's so internationally known and loved. So like if the musical even half works, it should be a cash cow or so they thought. Uh, so while that's happening, Aaron's and Flaherty decide to go ahead with a workshop in Toronto so they could shop for some new producers. So they already had in their contracts all this financial, all these financial benefits, but they also had in their contracts that they had specific approval of producers, which is super rare for a creative team, especially uh, them who were prominent and had just won Tonys for Ragtime, but they were not like internationally renowned writers. It's not like their names uh, solidified, you know, a $10 million advance or something like that, or got international attention in the way of, you know, like a Stephen Sondheim musical, oh, Stephen Sondheim's writing it, things like that. Uh, they do this workshop in Toronto uh, with Andrea Martin as the cat in the hat and a lot of people who would go on to be in the original production. And it was a very bare bones, fantastics like production, like using a ladder. It's now a tree and this chair becomes a who's a jiggy what's it. And the general feeling was that this show is fantastic. According to Michael Riedel, act two had some problems and it was a little long, but overall everyone was super in love with it and mostly was in love with the potential for the show. That's something that like people don't realize when some things go wrong on a Broadway stage and you go, how could this get so far for so long and no one realize it? And something like a workshop, because there's so much implication of what the design could be or what you can get with a larger cast or a larger orchestra, a lot of it is left to your imagination. And so people, fall in love with not just what's there, but what could eventually be there, the possibility of it all. And there was a lot of possibility with Susical. And so it's and not even just that people, oh, sorry, you're saying? No, just like the profoundness of that. Like, yeah, there are so many lessons to learn there in terms of theater, but also just in terms of going, taking it back to Figment to our imaginations, right? Yeah. Because the the steam and energy that this workshop cultivated in the theater community and just among producers in general was enough to keep it going through all of the drama that's about to come yeah. like th the promise of this workshop sparked the imagination and we we didn't have costumes we didn't have scenery didn't have anything except for actors delving into the imaginary world of one dr seuss was enough for all of the rest 
that we're about to talk about to seem worth it. And what's incredible is that somewhere along the way, we forgot why it was so important in the first place, why we were so excited about it. Yeah. Well, have you read the book about Big, the musical, Making Big, that sort of like documents that whole? Yeah. Um, One of my favorites. Yeah, it's it's so good. And I, I, I adore that score as well. That's a great score. But Richard Malpe Jr. says something along the lines of like, we're not dumb people making mistakes. We're really smart, talented people making huge mistakes. And we, and like, we don't realize their mistakes until they're up in front of us. And, and we talked about in the smile episode with Ali Gordon, but like, it's always a miracle that a Broadway musical gets put up at all. That like everything comes together just to like, be done in front of you. So Mm -hmm. know that first before you make critical analysis, which is why when I do, I do not necessarily drag a lot of shows. If I'm negative, I try to be negative in an intelligent kind of way. Uh, Every now and then I will drag a show. And when I do, it's because I have put all that into account and I'm like, and yet. (laughs) It comes from love is what you're saying. Sure. It comes from the love (laughs) of the theater. But some, as you said, like something like Seussical, you know, so um, I don't know if uh, you talk about this with your friends when it comes to like the romantic scene, but a lot of times when people go on like a great first date, they're often, they have to like figure out if they actually are falling for the person or for the promise of the person. Does that make sense? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Eon Levan Sant. She always talks about that. Is it the promise, the person or the penis? Who says this? Yanla Van Sant. Do you not know Yanla? Yanla Fix My Life on Oprah Winfrey Network? No. Tell me more. She's this amazing like spiritual teacher and mm-hmm. life coach. And so there, she has her own show on OWN. And people are like, Yanla Fix My Life. Like that's literally the name of the show. And yeah. very succinctly, that's what she tries to do. And that's one of her, she has all of these little sayings. And, you know, in specifically in toxic relationships, you you got to wonder, are you sticking around for them? Or are you sticking around in them for one of these three things? The person, the promise, or the penis? So is it just sex? Is it just the promise that they might be who you want them to be and what this relationship could be? Or is it the actual person, right? Is it is, is there something there that that you really admire and want to be around. Absolutely. Anyway, so I don't remember how we got there, but. Well, the promise of a musical, especially when you're like at a workshop. So, and that's why so many times a musical comes on stage that's so obviously not working and you go, how could no one see this? And the, the problem often comes from early iterations in a workshop or whatnot and people get so hopped up by the promise of the workshop of maybe like mm-hmm. things aren't quite there, but there is such pot- the, the potential, I should say the potential <laughs> of the show. And oftentimes that potential doesn't get fully realized. And there have been times where, you know, that gets nipped in the bud pretty early on, but uh, something like Susical, a lot of things get sort of lost in the shuffle, especially when you, when everything seems to be working and then all of a sudden it's just not, and it becomes all hands on deck. No one can see the forest for the trees. And a lot of things that should never have happened, happen, which is what, what we're hinting at. And, and now we'll get to that. So we have this r- workshop that goes incredibly well. Like everyone in, it happens in Toronto. Everyone in New York is talking about it. Every we producer. Also, we also have to really heavily underline Andrea Martin was playing 
the cat in the hat and was universally just lauded. Everyone thought this was the best, zaniest, most wonderful performance ever. Yeah, the the connection of her performance with that role really helped, I don't say elevate, but really brought everything together. And Heart, it's some, comedy, all of it. Andrea Martin is definitely what I would call a talent alien because she is so odd and she makes such interesting choices, but she's also an actress and she doesn't make weird choices for the sake of just like doing something wacky. She really does think it through. It's just like her mind is all, like there's a part of her brain that just is always out in left field. It's what I love so much about Jennifer Simard. They they think of these things that are so out there and then they figure out a way to make it justified by the character of the scene. And it's why we love them so much. It's why we'll watch them do anything. Anson Flaherty end up settling on the corporation SFX, which had absorbed Livent, I guess, in their way. They were like, we're keeping it in the family. And SFX appointed Barry and Fran Weisler as the active producers on this show. Legendary. Legendary. Jeff, for um, some of the neophytes on, on my listenership, can you tell us a little bit about Barry and Fran Weisler? Like, what, what have they done? What are they known for? They are known for finding a successful revival and just keeping it going and going and going with lots of interesting casting to mm-hmm. keep it going and going and going. Uh, they're also known for being pretty frugal as producers. They're not going to be paying the the biggest salaries in town, but they will keep your revival of Chicago going. They will keep your revival of Greece going for years and years and years. Absolutely. Annie, get your gun. They... They started their careers doing relatively inexpensive revivals with a name in it and that and usually touring it for a while and then bringing it in. So like the thing they did that really launched them was the, a production of Othello with Christopher Plummer that they like toured the country with and brought to Broadway for like three months. And it was such a huge moneymaker. They did it again with um, Anthony Quinn and Zorba. They did it with um, what's his face from Camelot. Uh, he did the movie and then he played Dumbledore, Richard Harris, Richard, Richard Harris and Camelot. Yeah. And then they did the time daily gypsy, which we love him for. They did uh topol and Fiddler. So that was very much their bread and butter. They hadn't really done a lot of new musicals at this point. I don't think I believe it up until Seussical. If they had done any new musicals, the majority of their productions were revivals. Mm hmm. And it's not that it's easier to do a revival. I mean, it is. And in a lot of ways it is and it isn't. But at least with a revival, like the book and the score are pretty much set. And you know that it works because it worked before. So it's just about doing it as best you can. With a new musical, there's so much going on. You don't know what works until you put it up in front of people. And then you do, if something's not working, you, it's hard sometimes to tell why it's not working. But nonetheless, they believed in the show and they, this is actually probably the least frugal they've ever been on a musical, I can, I can imagine. Uh, they do a reading uh, a little later, I think, yeah, I think like in the winter of 99, they do a reading in New York with Eric Idle as the cat in the hat, which I'm like, I wonder if that was awkward at all after he, you know, got dismissed from writing the book. But I don't know. I don't know. It's like being dumped by someone and then six months later being asked to officiate that person's wedding to another person. But at at the same time, like, I don't think anyone fights to be in a creative team where they don't feel they're wanted. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't if he felt like it wasn't going to be a profitable 
or not a profitable, if it didn't feel like it was going to be, uh, everyone was going to be on the same page, then I don't think anybody fights to be in there. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And yet again, this is homophobia because the idea of not being wanted makes me want to be there all the more, you know, it's just, I I just want to, I will make myself. That's on you. (laughs) That ain't homophobia. No, it's not homophobia. That's just, that is just mental anguish. But no, you're, you are correct in that sense, but I do wonder sometimes Uh, they do eventually get the money up. I think it's it's originally budgeted at 8.5 million. Yeah. 8.5 million. Uh, Frank Galati directs it because he did the workshop. He's best known at this point for Grapes of Wrath and for Ragtime. So he does have experience with big budget musicals. Kathleen Marshall is going to choreograph uh, and she had just come off of Kiss Me Kate, which was like a really big moment for her. And they go out of town to Boston to try out the show. Uh, We mentioned all the people uh, already who were in this principal company. Most of them had already done the workshop. The big switch is David Shiner as the cat in the hat. David Shiner, primarily known as a mime and a clown alongside Bill Irwin for a lot of shows. Or you might've seen him in the movie uh, Man of the House with Chevy Chase and Jonathan Taylor Thomas, maybe. Oh my gosh, really? He's in there? Yeah. Are you, so for anyone who's not familiar with that movie, nor should you be because it's uh one of those great 90s there are films. things that haven't aged well in that film yeah. but, oh, yeah, the, but the I culture appropriation a couple of times yeah absolutely yeah the culture appropriation is bonkers but he long story short chevy chase is dating farrah fawcett and jonathan taylor thomas is her son and he does intend to marry her at some point but in, before he can do that he's got to win over jtt and to troll him jtt signs them both up for a father-son a Native American like group, and it's of course all white men. And one of the kids' fathers is David Shiner, who is a professional mime and clown, and so he never speaks. And he does a whole lot of physical comedy. Uh, so that is his. That was his milieu. And Incredibly so, incredibly talented, like the the skill and kind of tradition to a virtually dead art form that this guy has is really wonderful and we should applaud him for it i do applaud him for it i personally well i'm just saying that because i'm not going to really applaud him in the cat in the hat um Mm -hmm. but he is pretty extraordinary he is i because he was my introduction to the cat in the hat i still uh stand by him although i do understand that he wasn't a natural fit. He had to, basically David Shiner had to work hard to get his performance in a place that could be comfortable within the world of the show. It was not something that he seamlessly uh, merged into. And when he finished, you know, there were still people who said that he wasn't totally right, but there was a bit of an ingenious casting about him because of the clown aspect of him. He could be goofy in the way that the show needed, but the problem was, and it took them opening in Boston to realize they had lost sight of the whimsy of the show and made it very dark all of a sudden because they wanted it to not just be for kids. They wanted adults to be into it too. So the marketing was very edgy and the set design was very dark. Uh, meanwhile, the costumes were very literal and the show was three hours long with a whole, you know, 20 minute uh, subplot number about the Lorax and environmentalism. And, uh, you know, David Shiner's performance was more esoteric than whimsical. There's a story of how he 
because he improv, the cat in the hat is also a track where you can improvise and david shiner's improvisations tended to be a little more not for children than i think the little mean honestly yeah there's a story of him going to the front row where a girl had her doll out and he bit off the head of the doll and then had to mime cpr for the doll when the girl had a panic attack as a girl as any child would if their item was bitten into two different pieces by someone they didn't know and that wasn't the only time he did that by the way oh he did it multiple times yeah he always managed to find the doll and like execute it on stage much to the child's horror and i think that he was always looking at it from the place of that the cat in the hat is is traditionally a very mischievous character right it, it, yeah. he even though we think of him as like every child's best friend you go to those books and he's creating just uh havoc and and chaos wherever he goes and so i think that that's what he was trying to tap into but it wasn't actually helping the kids feel safe and uh and entertained in this particular space so it just wasn't working his his yeah. kind of relationship with the kids when the news is all bad when you're sour and blue when you start to get mad you should do what i do Tell yourself how lucky you are. The cat in the hat in the books is mischievous, but it's more sort of like ain't I a stinker than it is malicious. And I think something like the doll head bit is a bit malicious. It's just it's like it's just one step too far. Like in yeah. the to quote Aida. But you look at those books and he comes in and completely destroys the house. This would have given me a lot of anxiety as a child. If if the if I invite the cat in the hat into my home, home, he destroys it all, and I think that I have to clean it all up before my parents get there. Like that uh-huh. is anxiety inducing, one hundred percent. But you just like step one foot over that line and into killing somebody's doll, and yeah. and now it's in a completely different place. Yes. Well, now also, the cat in the hat kills the goldfish, and that's one step too far. <laughs> right. I also just want to say that uh, the original creative team of Ragtime was, um, excuse me, help me out, director, Frank Galati. Uh, Frank Galati. Frank Galati, choreographer, Graziella Danielle, icon, legend, mm-hmm. right? And this team created some of the most iconic staging that we have in modern musical theater. They wanted that team back on for Susicle. But Grazi, from what I understand, uh, wanted to direct and choreograph. Yeah. She didn't want to just be a choreographer for that, which I completely agree and understand. And um, so that's when they brought on Kathleen Marshall. I wonder if some, what would have changed if Graziella was the original director for this? It would have been it a different show. Time. It may have been just as dark, for all I know. But well, uh, so you would've... think about you think about her direction. I mean, I when I think of Graciela Danielle as a director choreographer, I honestly think of three shows. I think of Once on This Island. I think of Hello Again, and I think of Marie Christine. And obviously, like Once on This Island, it was a much lighter piece, and it's because it leads with love first, and then Hello mm-hmm. Again is more sexually charged. Marie Christine is more dark, but from everything that I've read and seen of Marie Christine and hello again, I mean, she is definitely movement based. That's like movement first kind of director choreographer, but I think it would have been from what I can tell it's, it might've been more of, um, I don't know, like a little 
earthier. I don't know if it would have been if it would have had the whimsicality that they would have wanted. I don't know though. Once on this island, so whimsical and beautiful. Yeah, once on this island, I don't think of her original staging of that as whimsical so much as I think of it as very effervescent. It's very light, and I and that is and it works so well in that production, but it's not. Um, whimsical in the way that Seussical needed to be whimsical. It wasn't childlike. Um, it was innocent, but it wasn't. I think that's the way right. there's a difference between innocence and childlike. And we honestly merge the two a lot um, because we think of children as innocent. All it takes is, you know, one viewing of the movie kids to know that kids ain't so innocent. But I think that's for me, my, that's my prediction, but it could have been the opposite way. You know, we, we talk about this all the time of the stories where the last person you ever would have thought of for the role or for the score or for whatever comes in and knocks it out of the park. And one of the famous stories is Michael Crawford getting cast in the Phantom because everyone just knew him as a clown. And then all of a sudden he could do this. So we love to take these chances when they work. And then when it doesn't work in retrospect, everyone goes, well, we should have known, right? It's like, well, you don't know until you know. Sure. Yeah. And we people harp on give performers and writers and directors a chance to expand upon themselves. Uh, and it's uh, and it can often work out really great. But I'm just that's saying we, I'm just yeah. saying in terms of whimsy, what's more whimsical once on this island or the grapes of wrath? Or what's more whimsical? Uh, I don't know anything else Frank Kalani directed, but insert blank and Marie Christine. It's there's there's an argument for both. But Aaron's and Flaherty didn't didn't write Marie Christine. Lacusa did, did not. and and so like you you tap into Lacusa, it's going to be dark, right? It's, I think Wild Party is a fun old time, but that's just <laughs> me. It's a romp. It is. Listen, there are some bops in that score. I uh, love that show. Are you kidding me? It's so good. It's so good. We need to bring it back. Hashtag Justice for Wild Party, uh, which isn't on this series because it hasn't had a long, healthy life since. I hope to make that change after this series. But moving on. Uh, while in Boston, as some of us know, there was uh, something of a bloodbath going on out in Boston. Half the creative team got fired. Catherine Zuber was the first. She was the costume designer. First to be fired. Uh, Catherine Zuber... Also famous for Just name Wicked, it right? Uh, do Wicked or is that another Catherine? That might have been Sue. I think Susan Hilferty did oh, Wicked. Susan Hilferty, you're right. What did what did yeah. Catherine? Because Susan Hilferty just did Funny Girl, and I was like, did you really do both of these shows? Uh, Catherine Zuber right. has done a lot of the Mark has done a lot of the Bart Share shows. So she did, I believe, My Fair Lady, Land of the Piazza, South Pacific, King and I. Like has mm-hmm. done some mm-hmm. gorgeous costuming. Yeah, but. And and is an extraordinarily talented designer. Moulin she did Rouge. not. Well, you can't have everything. Every every person working on a show deserves a chance to fix, and she was not given that chance. She basically did her initial concepts and then was not given uh, notes on what to fix. She was just fired, and that's a shame. She was eventually replaced by William Ivy Long, who did do a very good job for the Broadway production. But when they were out of town, he basically told the entire cast, you are to wear black, go out and buy yourself some black clothes, and I will eventually costume you. There is a... Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. So just to go back to what you were saying, the original costumes were very literal. Yeah. If you were a bird, then your costume was a bird costume. Right? And, And then one day, the cast literally gets an email that's like, go to Target, buy some black clothes and come to the theater. Eventually you'll get costumes. But all of the like these million dollar costumes 
are going in the trash. Pretty much. Yeah. There's a story in one of the Riedel columns about a cat. William Ivy Long's statement was uh, black, flattering, uh, uh, Prada-like. Not Prada, but Prada-like. And one cast member apparently took the Prada, cut out the like, and went out and actually bought $750 Prada pants and tried to charge it to production. And the (laughs) Westers basically said, return those pants today and come back with like black sweats. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, trying to, you know, get Prada out of Barry and Fran Weisler, the people who <laughs> will nickel and dime you till you're dead. The one thing we haven't talked about up until this point is what's your relationship to like Dr. Seuss books? I don't know what children's relationships are to him now, but I feel like I had a similar relationship as everyone. You know, I grew up with those books. I owned some. If there were ones that I didn't own, the, you know, library at my school when I was a kid, I'm talking like nursery, kindergarten, first grade, had all of them. Uh, mm-hmm. There are animated films of his books that are, you know, yes, 30 minutes long. I loved long. those. Yeah. Yes, the How the Grinch totally. Stole Christmas, Cat in the Hat. Those, the, yeah. And I remember like being on vacation sometimes and renting those videos of, like my parents were going out for the night and they needed something to have me watch or, you know, whatever, or something to like distract me for an hour and a half. I could watch those, you know, movies on loop. Uh, I wasn't like a Susian fanatic uh i was much more of a disney kid but i did like the books and i knew the books in the way that i feel like a lot of kids did um yeah yeah and then i mean i remember when the movie movie of how the grinch stole christmas came out that was like such a big deal because that was the Mm -hmm. first live action dr seuss movie and i think that was coming around around the same time the seussical was happening because universal was also a producer on this show and to funnel in money and there was going to sort of be kind of a synergy uh of the two and then when Seussical wasn't able to help, uh, hold up its end of the bargain, it was just Grinch. It was just Grinch. Interesting. Yeah. I, like, Sneetches was a really important book at my house. Mm. I remember that being a, an important an important moment. Those of are the Green... stars on their bellies? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really profound story when you, when you look oh, yeah. at it. Um, also, I loved... Green Eggs and Ham, of course. Mm-hmm. I remember in preschool we had Green Eggs and Ham Day, where mm-hmm. we, like, same we, we had, had that we had that too. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, you're you're exactly right. I, I somehow always forget about the Grinch, but obviously. Oh, and the Lorax destroyed me. I mean, as a child, cutting down a tree was emotionally painful. I don't know why, but like Fern Gully, game over. It was not. This was the saddest thing I'd ever seen in my life. So uh, I can only imagine what like a 20, 20 minute Lorax section in the middle of Seussical would have done to me as a child. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, there are apparently tears everywhere, but not in the good way. Just like kids right. are so devastated. Just so devastated. Why do they cut down the trees? Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is like there was a there was a dichotomy between what production wanted and what Aronson Flaherty wanted. They wanted something very earnest, very pure, and they wanted it to talk about serious subjects in the way that Seuss did. Like, 
the whole thing with Dr. Seuss books is that he there's there's the economy of words. He always made sure that every page had like a maximum of four lines on it. It always rhymed and that they would talk about things that children needed to learn in ways that weren't preachy and were ways that they could absorb. So being kind to one another, prejudice, environmentalism, you know, things that we still quote today, a person's a person, no matter how small, mm-hmm. things like that. And there is a joy and a happiness about that. And, but sometimes those books do have a touch of sadness, like the Lorax. Um, I mean, the Sneetches that I would argue that book made me very sad until like the last two pages. Uh, like just when everyone always hating each other's always made me very upset. The conflict in stories used to really upset me as a child. Mm-hmm. And me too. now I love it. Yeah. Now I'm like drama. I always say this King Trine destroying the, the grotto and, you know, in little mermaid, I had to leave the room. I could not handle it. I'm not going to take that bait listeners. Everyone knows how I feel. About Little Mermaid, how it, what it means to me emotionally. I will not discuss it any further because, uh, Jeff, we are not going to go on a four-hour episode because Lord knows I could do four hours on Little Mermaid. But yes, agreed. Great. The grotto scene, it still destroys me to this day. It's a it's an absolutely heartbreaking moment and a dark moment that uh, a lot of Disney movies wouldn't dare go these days. No, no, no. no. Anyway, but anyway, but I totally I totally agree. There is a. A, a strange and and maybe that is how we dipped into it being a little too dark right yeah in boston is that there is an inherent sadness to a lot of the conflict that is explored in seuss material and and once again you take one step too far into that maybe design wise or performance wise or just structurally and now it's like it's a it's a show that you never intended it to be yeah. Well, so there are two things about Dr. Seuss books that make it get lost in translation whenever it gets adapted. One is no matter how hard you try, you cannot capture the aesthetic of a Dr. Seuss book unless you literally just do his designs and color palette, because the colors in a Dr. Seuss book are very kind of pastel It's a lot of colors, but it's never bold. There's always a lightness about it. So it's never imposing. It's never in your face. Uh, so no matter how dark the story gets, it's always taking place in a world with, you know, pinks and blues that are like, it's like very Eastery, these colors, you know? Mm. The other thing is that- It's we softer. About this, it, it's, de- it's definitely softer than you would think of. Yeah. Well, because you think of children's books and we think of Dr. Seuss now from the animated movies and the live action movies and we're like, oh my God, every color in the crayon so box saturated. is saturated. Yeah. Mm. And it's much lighter in the actual books. The other thing is, and we talked about it with the Candide episode- when you there's there's a distance you get from a story when you're reading it when it's when there's a narration about it that makes it a little that can make it harder to swallow when you watch it being played out in front of you so something like the lorax is a little easier to tolerate when you read it because it is done in a third party narrative there is a distance about it it's not actually happening in front of you it can still move you but it's not as difficult to swallow and then when it's done actually with people in front of you, there's a difference to it. And that's why sometimes a lot of books that have a very dark satirical edge to them don't translate well on stage. Books with really unreliable narrators like Catcher in the Rye or Lolita do not translate well into a dramatic sense. So it's hard sometimes with something like Dr. Seuss where you can still find the levity in the darkness because it, it there's that distance with the narration. Uh, and I, do, I don't think they've ever really captured that in any iteration of the show. 
but they do lighten the proceedings a bit, which helps. Also, it's important to note, this show is one of the earliest, most extreme examples of toxic internet culture. We, d- we talked about it a little bit with Sideshow of sort yeah. of how... I was uh, going to say, Sideshow is the one I always think of. The Yeah, the 98 Sideshow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the they're... message boards. That was the first time I remember knowing what a message board was, was because yeah. everybody was on the Sideshow stuff just arguing back and forth about whether it yeah. was good or not. Yeah, the 1997-1998 Broadway season is really kind of uh, the launching pad of it all. Maybe like the year before with Titanic, but I would say the culture of of arguments and spilling the tea of backstage gossip and reports from previews really kind of launched in that 97-98 season with Sideshow, uh, with Lion King, and with Cabaret. There's you know very famous stories of Natasha Richardson being just dragged through the mud in the first week of previews of Cabaret, and then you know she finds her footing. The show opens. She gets across the board raves and the and the narrative changes but susical you know it's not enough that susical got pretty mixed to bad reviews out of town that word carried to new york and the internet just kept that buzz alive that negative buzz alive and anything that was going on with susical was fodder for the vultures oh, they changed the director. They changed the designers. Oh, they've now delayed previews. Oh, now they're pushing back opening night. Oh, now the budget went from 8.5 million to 10 million. Oh, it's three hours long. They're doing what they can, whatever. Like Rob Marshall can't save this. Things yeah, like that. It, and it just, it just is a, it smells of a production in trouble. Exactly. And people love to spread that rumor. They absolutely do. And it, there, there's a weird kind of shot in for it as certain people get with shows in trouble whereas you know i'm always hoping that it gets turned around because lord knows we need more good shows out there i think we are starved for it a lot of the time so i always want something to be good and if it's in trouble i always want them to turn it around i don't get joy out of ooh, this is happening oh god it's fun to talk about in retrospect just in the sense of you know the stories that come out of it and especially with something like susical that does actually end up having a happy ending but yeah, the, the internet kept Susical from ever being an underdog. It was just kept on being kicked and kicked and kicked. And especially once Full Monty opened and that ended up becoming the first real hit of the season, they didn't need Susical to be successful anymore. They're like, we got one and the buzz on producers is good. So who cares about Susical? That can be the big flop of the year. And it does eventually open to extremely negative reviews and business is hurting and what ends up happening with it is rosie o'donnell in her heyday with her rosie o'donnell show is taking every chance she gets to promote the show talking it up she has the cast come on multiple times and then finally barry and fran weisler just go come out to them like can you play the cat in the hat for a month we will pay for david shiner to take a month off you come in we need uh, sales to boost and even that there was like toxicity around her being put in that of everyone saying like oh this is stunt casting at its worst and it i mean it ended up saving the show for a few months she mm-hmm. really she boosted uh, ticket sales she got uh, publicity out of it and you no know, everyone in the cast has from what i've who, from who i've spoken to has had nothing but nice things to say about her she really enjoyed the show believed in the show and was a team player and absolutely the and well. she was also had a re- working relationship with the weislers because she played rizzo in greece so yeah, she did. there there was precedence for her to be working with this producer team and also she was somebody who liked the show i mean she yeah. just loved it and she obviously has a lot of kids 
and took them to the show and they loved the show. And I think on some level, I'm a huge Rosie fan. Um, on, on some level, I think she's like, do these reviewers even have children? Like, yeah. <laughs> should they even be weighing in on this show? I'm the one who has kids. My kids love it. So I'm going to use uh, my platform to, to you know, get some pe- butts in the seats, essentially. Yeah. The thing about, <sighs> there's, there's a weird mentality when it comes to critics. And I get it and I, and I don't get it at the same time. Because the problem is that a lot of critics, especially at this time, this is sort of like right before the bust with critic influence. Uh, a lot of critics get up their own butts of their own importance and their own cachet of like, well, my word is law because my word's what's being you know published for the masses to see. And often there becomes this uh, that heightened sense of importance also then uh, goes into their taste level, especially someone like Ben Brantley, who, you know, I don't always agree with when he gets something right. He gets it so right. Like his review for fun home on Broadway is still one of my favorite pieces of writing ever, but it's lovely to hear. I love that. Yeah, no, he's written some good reviews and he's he's some, again, sometimes he got it right, but with his review for Susical and a lot of other of those critics, like their own self-importance and their own need to talk down on shows for children. And I also think there was a bit of a, um, sense of regret that they all raved about Lion King because of what that ended up doing for theater culture mm. uh, of the, of the kids show taking over and lasting forever and becoming this institution. Like we don't want to start a trend here. We don't, we want there to be good shows that, that kids go and appreciate, but we don't want an influx of kids shows. That's and an interesting school, theory. Think, yeah. And Sue school was in, was a major target. I mean, Frank Rich talks about it all the time in hot seat of like, he looked back at his, tenure and looked at some of the shows and he said was I unfair to this show because I raved about this show the year before and it ended up succeeding more than I wanted it to and Mm. then I felt the pressure of such and such so like he talks about you know he actually thought he was a little too kind to the original production of Lacage because Broadway was in such desperate need of a hit and of a gay story that he like gave it more uh uh love than he thought it deserved and he thought he was too harsh on other shows and and it's it's good for Crick to look back and think that way. Uh, I don't know if Ben Brantley ever does, but I do think that he has influenced time. the crit. He's got time <laughs> to do it now, yeah. But I do think that that is absolutely true of critics because it's true of all of us. You know, we the uh, way yeah, we says, take in says two guys who uh, have podcasts, right? Like yeah, exactly. obviously we <laughs> we feel our opinions are are important enough that everyone should be listening to us talk. Sure. <laughs> I do. I do think that way, in my opinion. I also just like talking about shows. I love the discourse of it all. And I think that all art is a conversation. And I'm always Ooh, looking at my opinion. Absolutely. I'm always looking at my opinion changed, too. Uh, rarely has someone done it, but it has happened. So <laughs> I just want people to know that I'm not totally stuck in my ways. I do like to hear other people's perspectives, because the truth is also like what you think of a show also comes from like where you are in your life when you experience at it. At that you- moment. Oh, so true. What you get from a show is what you bring to it. So when people talk about the dynamics of certain characters or the message of the story, on a lot of times it's us projecting. Like, I don't think I would love Little Mermaid as much as I do if I wasn't like a very quiet, uh, very feminine, misunderstood little boy who would eventually become gay and like very much saw himself in that storyline. And I've touted it for years since. But that I think also is true of the critics. I think if 
Broadway were in really dire straits and in desperate need of a hit and needed to engage younger audiences, I think critics would have been a little kinder to Susicle and have seen what it was trying to do. Uh, mm-hmm. that, which is what you're, as a critic, what you're supposed to do is acknowledge what a show is aiming to do and then uh, determine if it does it well in any Successfully. way. Successfully, yeah. Yeah, not if it's not for your taste. The one time Ben Branley has ever written a review that I that I can remember where he was like, I didn't like this, but I cannot deny that it works for the audience was Drowsy Chaperone. He's like, I don't like this show. He's like, but I would be lying. He's like, but I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that the entire audience was having a grand old time. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I may be misremembering exactly, but I recall that energy of the review. Anyway. But uh, after that, all that being said, there were things to criticize about Susical. Sure. And we'll talk about it as we talk about the show. But the bottom line is that the show eventually closed after almost six months at a total loss, actually a larger loss because while it went up to $10 million by previews, it actually went up to $11 million uh, that it lost due to uh, stunt casting and uh, whatnot. We already talked about Kathy Rigby and Aaron Carter. They could not save the show. It got one Tony nomination for Kevin Chamberlain for actor in a musical. Like I said, Mm. he gets nominated for doing musicals that people don't like because he also got Adam's family. And yeah, I mean, that, that was the year of producers and, any year where Full Monty could run for two years, make its money back, and get nominated for multiple Tony Awards and still be considered cheated. That tells <laughs> you how big of a hit the producers was that season. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And Jane Eyre was also that year in a class act. I know Jane Eyre kind of, and I think it's kind of dull. And I only know the score of class act, which I think is cute, but I don't know. There, I think at the very least, Susical should have gotten a score nomination. That score is Absolutely. objectively great. They're the greatest compliment that I can give to the Susical score is that I cannot tell where Dr. Seuss begins and Lynn Aarons begins. Mm. There are moments where I'm like, wait, was this from the book? And it is just Lynn Aarons coming up with lyrics that sound like Dr. Seuss. That is no small feat, not to mention they're dipping into kind of a pastiche way of creating musical theater. Every song is from a different genre. And to me, it feels much more cohesive and far less grating than some of like the more popular Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff. They, yeah. it, it is, it, they're playing with pastiche, but within the world of Seuss and it feels very cohesive. It does. I very much agree with that. The, yeah, the score is really just really goddamn impressive. And I'm so excited that we're now at the point where we can talk about it in depth because that is the section we've come to, Jeff, is discussing the show. So, Jeff, for anyone who doesn't know, because maybe they've avoided it all these years because they, I don't know, want to listen to Finding Neverland Forever. uh, What is Susical about? Oh, gosh. What is Susical about? Well, it's taking (laughs) all of the not all of the, but many of the stories of Dr. Seuss and kind of intertwining them. So a big portion of it is uh, Horton Hears a Who, in which you've got Horton the Elephant, who is not well-liked in his area of the jungle of Newell. And he hears on one single clover a little call for help. Mm. Yeah? Uh, Of course, because elephants have those great big ears, so he's able to hear it. Uh, and, speck of dust. It's a speck of dust that he puts on the oh, clover. Oh, that's right. The speck of dust on the clover. Oh my gosh, you're so right. So it's even smaller than that. Mm-hmm. And on this speck of dust is an, is an entire 
what race, community, world? Well, it turns out that the speck of dust is actually a planet. Um, it's a planet. It's a planet, I mean, a very small one that basically consists of like four towns. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like if, if the, I would say like probably if the state of New York could be turned into a planet, that is the planet of who. That is the planet of who, which is the speck of dust, which is on the clover, which is currently being held by yes. one horn, the elephant. Um, and and so then it's it becomes about uh, this this town that is what they're about to be destroyed. Why do they're, they need help? They're on they're on the well. So it also again it all depends on which version you get because the other thing is sure. that once the show closed, uh, Aaron's and Flaherty did some tweaks to the show so it could go out on the road and uh, they made the character of Jojo, which we'll get to in a second, more of um, an outside figure who gets put into the story. Put into the and, story, sure. And then Theater Works did a even more streamlined production. Susan that the kids. And, yeah, that was right? like, I think, yeah, that's like about an hour and 30 or hour and 20 with like nine people and they cut a lot of stuff. And so MTI, Music Theater International, has three versions. There's Susical, Susical Junior, and Susical Kids. I think Susical Kids is like 45 minutes. Susical mm-hmm. Junior, I think, is about an hour and 20. And then Most Susical, are, yeah. yeah, and Susical is like about a, is a proper two-hour musical. And the Susical Susical has the plot line of war with uh, General, what's-his-face, Schmitz. Schmitz. Sh- and- Schmitz. Yes. Yes, yes. And so, yeah, the whole thing with, Sus- with Whoville is that there is going to be war. And so the kind of the main who is this little kid named Jojo, right? Mm-hmm. The mayor's son. And he and Horton have a connection. Yeah. So we've got that whole section. But then within the jungle of Newell are many other Sioux stories like Gertrude McFuzz, like Maisie LeBird. So wh- which ones do you want to talk about? And and do you want to kind of delve into the stories and, and then crisscross or what would you like to do? Um. I would I would like to sort of talk about specific songs in each plot line. So the main plot line is yes, Horton with the speck of dust, and every animal in the jungle of Newell thinks he's insane, and Crazy. that comes yeah, and they that comes back in Act Two when they file a case against him, the people versus Horton the elephant, a bird in the jungle. Gertrude has feelings for Horton, but he doesn't notice her, and she thinks it's because she has one pathetic little tail, and then Maisie LeBird, who has a big old tail, she is you know. The she is the Gina Gershon to Gertrude McFuzz's Elizabeth uh, Berkeley, Elizabeth Berkeley, yeah, and Showgirls. Are you making a um, Showgirls reference? Yes, I'm making That's a Showgirls funny. reference. Welcome to the pod, Jeff. You talk about when you cry. You want to know what makes me cry? Elephant bird? When Horton and Gertrude look at the elephant bird and Horton gets in despair. He says, I, I'm slow and I'm fat. All I know is the earth. He needs much more than that. And then Gertrude, like the fucking icon she is, 
starts to sing alone in the universe, but she sings the bridge. I have wings. Yes, I can fly. My fucking God, do I cry every single time. I could be on the subway at the gym alone in my room. Full chills. And then the show ends. See, this is why. So on my show, I we always go through the musical to kind of pick different things and and mm-hmm. look at the cultural and emotional impact and this is the reason why is because for any criticisms that we may have about the show like we talk about it and get to the heart of its storytelling and I'm mm-hmm. immediately sold I'm like great when when do I get to see Susical I'm so jazzed yeah. now Absolutely and listen perfection is overrated I think I can name on one hand the number of musicals that are objectively perfectly written and those musicals also now have lost some intrigue because we now analyze them to the nth degree that they're no longer exciting. Sure. So most musicals are going to have a flaw, even like super great ones have flaws in them. But it is about the impact overall. And what balances out a flawed musical is how many great moments it has. So something like Susical, I think, has so many great moments of various kinds, which I do think balances out a lot of the flaws that it does have. One is that heartbreaking moment on a heartbreaking heart fulfilling moment and then sure. another one also gertrude um is the transition from the one feather tale of gertrude mcfuzz into amazing Maisie. which listen before gaga did chromatica into 911 or maybe it's 911 into chromatica <laughs> there was gertrude mcfuzz into amazing Maisie. that transition is stellar It's awesome. You're right. It's great. Um, but let's also, like, number for can we can we talk about the fact that Dr. Seuss wrote a story that kind of tackles uh, body image and oh, yeah. um, and uh, plastic surgery before it was even a thing in our social awareness? Like, oh yeah, come on, visionary. Body dysmorphia for days. The yeah. the tale of Gertrude McFuzz is interesting because there is. <sighs> The way like the body positivity of plastic surgery now is, you know, if there's something about yourself that you that causes you pain or suffering or mental anguish, you know, if you have the means, why not change it? And I get that. But not everyone has the means. Not everyone has the means to. And sometimes but also and, circumstances and, are never going to solve all of your problems. Eventually no. you're going to have to look inward. And if we're ignoring that. Like, we ain't never going to be happy. Well, are we ever going to be happy, Jeff? Oh, my gosh. You need to get out of New York, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never been to Hawaii. So I would like, I should go there and, and see and see the ocean. It would be nice. Yes, please. Yeah. Come visit. Yeah. <laughs> the last few times I left New York City was to go to Disney World, which is not a place you go for fun. It's a place where you go to win. So I need, like, a place oh where I can go just be. <laughs> I'm sorry. Who Do goes you know to Disney that- World for fun? I re- uh, yes, absolutely. I love Disney World. And I this reminds me, I, I there was one moment where I was like really trying to um, I was like trying to do a meditation, like a, like a mm-hmm. really get still. Right. And um, go inward and see what what comes up. And do you know what came up? What came up? Oh, the things you can think. Think and wonder and dream far as wide as you dare. I don't know why, but like I have a specific memory of being like, 
how did Susical just come into my brain? I was trying to get quiet, and now I have Flaridian uh, Flarens. How about that? Flaridian yeah. in my brain. Uh, that'll that'll do it. Well, what a great transition to talk about the opening number. A great opening yes. number, if ever there was one. Oh, the things Hello. you can think, which is yep. obviously inspired from Oh, the Places You'll Go. Mm. Now, first, this song, for first of all, is a bop. She slaps. It is. Uh, I'm, I'm. I find the the electric guitar questionable now. I didn't yes, think that of it is before, very dated. But now that I now that I look back, I'm like, oh, maybe not. Well, I would love to hear a new orchestration because I think Thank the you. song itself is great. Yeah, but that's. I will say the one thing that kind of I struggle with with Seussicals. I would. I do believe that it shouldn't be a giant spectacle. I think it can be somewhere in the middle. But mm -hmm. I also love the big sound of the cast recording. So I'm like, can we do this show and like the Jacobs or the music box with, you know, 14 person cast and minimal, but pretty sets, but a solid 20 piece orchestra, please. please sure. and thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's what I want. <laughs> Let's spend all the money on the orchestra. Yes. For once. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm totally I mean, down with that. The one time the guitar comes in, I don't know if it's the guitar or the bass or what, but when they do the, you think and think, just think. That, yeah. Cause it's, it's the whole orchestra, <laughs> but the guitar adds a little like, to it and i'm like absolutely yeah, you can, that's I'm like that's you can fun. stay that's yeah, fun. She's fun. you're right yeah but it's i mean it's a really good number because it is whimsical it is fun it is broadway and it does introduce you to all the characters without knowing exactly in that beautiful ragtime sort of way i don't know how they mm -hmm. do it but we get to know the entire cast but in the six minute number yep well they, they actually do it more economically than ragtime because ra the opening to ragtime is like 10 minutes long and this is i think four maybe a little less than that sure. they what they do is they give each character they give gertrude Maisie, Car kangaroo people like that and you're like uh a one line that we can connect them it's you know what it is it is very uh it predates great comets opening because mm. um you know how like the opening of great comet it's very sort of ragtime meets 12 days of christmas yeah because it repeats through everyone because there's so many characters in great comet no that's a, uh, it's yeah vast <laughs> yeah, but what's but what they get from Susical is giving each character a line. It's uh, mm -hmm. whereas in Ragtime, everyone gets a little speech about their characters. Everyone in Susical and everyone in Great Comet gets one lyric to define their characters. Like Natasha is young, she loves Andre with all her heart. And so with Susical, we have Gertrude, think of a bird with a one feather tail. Amazingly, the bird think is a think of a bird flying off on a spree. And you don't, even if you don't remember everyone after that first number specifically when they pop back in we remember the feeling we get from the music and the line that they sing in that opening we're like okay i have an idea of who this character is and what they're going to be like for the rest of the show and so as we watch them the more uh we we see of their stories the more we remember but we're already locked in on some like chemical level and it's very intelligent that way i really love it because everyone's music yeah. also kind of uh alters a bit for them um or at least how like how it's how it's sung how it's orchestrated it's it's really good I like it. Yeah. 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 It's it's killer. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think anything I mean, I, other than just loving the song. I think it's Bob. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to talk about with the opening number. Got a great key change. Oh, yeah, it does. Uh, I also love the line because this ain't Mother Goose. <laughs> First of all, Lynn Aarons, how dare you drag Mother Goose through the mud? But also it's clever and a great rhyme for Seuss when you think about yes. Seuss. Yeah. yeah. Seriously. Yeah, it's also the only song in the show that acknowledges that Dr. Seuss exists and that, you know, we're all characters in a story because uh, hmm. after that, it just becomes the story. We are the story. Yeah. 
it's kind of Shakespearean that way, you're right. Yeah, I like it. I like it very much. Me too. What's a song you want to talk about that immediately comes to mind for you? Oh, gosh. Well, um, let's talk about the Bird Girls because uh, there are days where I just go through the album and only listen to the Bird Girl moments. Um, Her harmonies are tight as fuck. So tight. They sound so great. They've got some of the most melodic, beautiful stuff as well. they kind of take over sometimes as narrators. Um, they're they seem to be like the the little minions of Maisie LeBird, but then they also have this third person and perspective on kind of everything that's going down right now. Yeah, they well they're established first as sort of like a Greek chorus because we have them in Jungle of Newell. They each mm-hmm. have their little solos. And which also for anyone who is a true musical theater nerd, you know exactly which actress is singing which line. Like, you know, which one's Sarah Gellifinger, you know, which one's Natasha. Um, 100%. Yeah, because that's the thing is they all have very distinct voices that blend together so well. Um, We talked about it like with the Sideshow episode, but it's what makes Alice Ripley and Emily Skinner so dynamic as Daisy and Violet is that their voices are so different. And then you put it together and they don't sound like one person, but they sound like one unit. And that mm, is what makes that's a great that's way of saying di- it. Thank you. That's the difference between finding three like-minded voices playing the dreams and dream girls and finding three dynamic voices can come together and make history. Because mm-hmm. you better believe Shirley Ralph, Loretta Devine, and Jennifer Holiday do not sound the same. Yeah. Have you heard Shirley Ralph say that that um she was told that the reason she got the role is that they were looking for a voice that was just like this? And I'm for those that mm-hmm. can't see me, I'm I'm putting my my hand across the the screen as though it's a a, a dead person in an operating room. Yeah, a flat line, right? A flat line. Yeah. Um, but like that's the color that they needed with like the crazy high tones of Laura Devine, and then you know mm-hmm. everything that is Jennifer Holiday, and she's mm-hmm. like, and I at some point I had to take it as a compliment. <laughs> well, as well should, and she did say also that like she also held back a lot in Dream Girls because it made more sense for well. There's 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 a lot of head voice that she does that I think she probably could have chested a bit more because if you listen to the 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 bootleg of it on Broadway when they get to you know, like the heavy mm-hmm. uh, recitative she's belting a lot of the recitative and heavy and when they get to the performances you know Dina's always head then she's going to yeah her Diana and then, Ross land yeah and it's because dramatically speaking Dina needed to be that smooth down, middle of the road uh, tone and it does work it. The blend she has with Loretta and Jennifer Holiday on Fake Your Way to the Top when they do the always oh, so real, like mm-hmm. that three part harmony is gorgeous. Yeah. And it's always real, so real. But we're not talking about Dreamgirls, we're talking about Seussical. But it's a but, similar idea. Yeah, it's a similar yeah. idea. We got the, three each- iconic musical theater performers who uh, mm-hmm. all sound differently and sound amazing on these little bits. Yes, they are, they do not sound like one person. They sound like one unit when they sing, and it's great. Um, they 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 provide um, support when they need it, like in Amazing Gertrude. Uh, the the way that they that they sing, and I think it's really intelligent uh, musical arrangements. They sound like backup in Amazing Maisie, and then they sound like support in Gertrude. Like they they give Gertrude Amazing Gertrude more um, 
oomph. Whereas Amazing Presence Maisie, and... it's very much the Michelle Pock show. And mm-hmm. I think that is very intentional on the music side. And I love that. Even um, All For You. Uh, All For You. The, I would say the first half of All For You, they are more of a balance with Gertrude. And then when Janine Lamana just rips it, they're like, we'll just do ooze for you. <laughs> Why don't so more girls do All For You for like a showcase? Because that's a great showcase song to do. It's true. It's, it's true. a story song. It builds. You get to show personality. Yeah, it's everybody cool. would rather do Screw Loose. Or is that, is that how, that's how the you... thing? Screw uh, Loose from Crybaby? Yeah. People are doing that in showcases these days? Yeah, I've seen a couple. I don't know what the kids are doing anymore. I just, I get told via Instagram sometimes when I do an episode and I'll have like a Gen Z listener be like, oh, grandpa, here's what's going on. Uh, otherwise, I... I don't really know. I've also been seeing people like creating their own arrangements, which I'm like, yes, more power to you. Like, oh, yeah. This one, um, this one girl I know, she had done a, like a, a combination of, ooh, I'm forgetting now, but it was like maybe Hallelujah with Spark of Creation. Ooh. You know what I mean? Like they're creating their own pieces for showcase and I'm like, I'm here for it. I think that's so smart. Absolutely. Or it's like, even if you just do one song, if you want to do it in a different style than it's normally done, that's also amazing. Mm. Um, Taking a ballad, making it up tempo, taking it up tempo, make it a super slow, heavy, bluesy ballad. Like, yes, please. Um, The way, just think of the way Streisand does the second half of Down With Love. It makes it a total musical theater breakdown. That's what makes a legend. song all for you which is when gertrude comes to rescue horton from the circus and basically tells him everything that happened to her from end of act one to act two to get there yes it's god i love it you want to know why i love it jeff you want to know why i love it tell me i may or may not have gone viral a few weeks ago posting about the state of musical theater singing and writing these days now Speaking, (laughs) speaking of opinions being validated and needed go ahead (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Um, but what that post was all about, and I wasn't trying to put like writers on blast. It was more just sort of an acknowledgement of where we're currently at and seeing if now that we all acknowledge it, if we can maybe do something going forward, which is, you know, so many songs now go for the jugular of vocals, which I get it's there's a chemical reaction you get to when someone who is very talented and very skilled sings a note that's very impressive. Like, no, even if my brain is going like that wasn't necessary, my groin is like yas bitch work but afterwards i think about it and it's it doesn't stay with me when a song can justify its by by can justify its money notes by building and the money notes don't have to be d's and e's they can be b's and c's as long as it complements the the performer and the character and that is what all for you i think really does it has some big notes because Janine lamana can sing you don't mm-hmm. you don't get to be Janine lamana and not be able to sing she can sing but it doesn't go to the roof of her register. It goes probably like to the roof of her mid register. I think maybe it all goes up to like maybe a C or a C sharp. I think she even sings higher in Notice Me Horton than she does in All For You. 
but she's a, by not worrying so much about having a high, high note to reach to, she can put all of her energy into just the storytelling of, and now, and you know, we're on verse four now of the stuff I went through to get here. And here we go. I howl through the snow when 11 below, mm-hmm. uh, the way she goes, I, I uh, stubbed my little toe, but I hobbled like, so like just gives it her <laughs> entire throat and it's glorious. And I, yeah, and it allows so many the great actress- colors. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so many colors, all the colors of the wind. It allows your actress to really just give their all and not have to be scared of it, of the song. And I love that for it. Um, what are your takeaways of All For You? I Well, what you were talking about also makes me think of Michelle Pock on, on this particular cast album, is that these are two actresses who are singers, but are truly acting mm-hmm. these roles and these songs by implementing and using so many different colors of their voice. They're, they are not just trying to be pretty. They're not just trying to be impressive. They are truly communicating all of the clever and, uh, and, and witty lyrics by bringing something new to each little phrase. And the way that they're navigating it when you like really break it down is kind of extraordinary. Oh yeah. I mean, all you have to do is look at amazing Maisie and all the different registers of her voice that Michelle Pock uses and Mm -hmm. how she's not afraid to sometimes speak a line, but in a very light musical way, how she's not afraid to go into her head voice or to use a character voice. She uses bird noises like none other. Which Um, I love so much because like, and I think that that goes to the imagination of what we've been discussing so much with this show is I don't really need a bird costume if Michelle Pock is making choices like that that are bird-like, you know, yeah. that are bird-adjacent. Like, that tickles me even more than any amazing costume that might tell me something more literal. Oh, absolutely. And there, there, if you look at her costume, I mean, the costumes, once they got to Broadway again, was much more suggestive. So Kevin Chamberlain was wearing, like, a gray shirt, pants, and jacket that was kind of um, wrinkly to suggest elephant hide but nothing mm-hmm. on his head no trunk no ears michelle pock pretty much just wore like a purple or like a lavendery purple uh vegas dress where the back end was mostly made of feathers but that was it to suggest her mm-hmm. very large tail uh janine lamana wore a very simple blue skirt that went like very high up uh, and just had some feathers coming out of her hair there was nothing else to really suggest that they were birds uh, but I like the idea of having a couple of feathers just to be like, I'm a bird. See the feathers? There mm-hmm. we go. And then everything else is up to the audience's imagination and up to you. And it also allows your actor to be free to try stuff. They're not burdened yeah. by the by the heaviness of their costume of having to be so re- uh, realistic. So, yeah, I like it a great deal. I mean, also, again, talking about bops upon bops. Amazing, Maisie. I have, I have very much the intention one day to do drag just for a night. I remember I talked to Natasha Diaz about this. I said, two numbers I know for certain I want to do as um, Tara, T-A-R-A, Tara, way pants. Uh, I want to do, there it is. Now he gets it. The first one I want to do is- I got it. It just got me a, it got me a- The first number I want to do is Eartha Kit, Wild Party, Moving Uptown. Thank you. Look at these beautiful legs. And then the second yes. one I want to do is Amazing Maisie. And I want to have little puppets as my backup bird girls. Uh, 
just because. Look, I think I, I think that this may be wish fulfillment for a lot of gay boys watching because I think we all want to sing Amazing Maisie, right? Yeah. We all want the opportunity to just feel that. <laughs> yeah. We want to be that girl. We want to be. It's why we it's why uh, so many boys in musical theater, why we worship the divas of musical theater. There's um, there was a play I just saw called Which Way to the Stage, which has its things. But one of the things they do actually talk about, which I love, is why so many gay men uh, adore certain iconic female roles in musical theater, because they are sort of a way to channel the energies that we're not allowed to really do on stage that for roles that aren't written for us. So mm-hmm. we get to watch, you know, Barbara Streisand let loose and Funny Girl. We get to watch Michelle Pock be an absolute icon as Maisie LaBird. And yeah. it's wonderful. It's it's just it's flouting your deliciousness and yes. being weird and being celebrated for it. It's such a wonderful sensation. Loud. In addition to yeah. the song just being absolutely phenomenal, just like dip me in it and mix me around with all the chocolate and the cotton candy and the sprinkles and come out looking like the colorful candy cane you are. I don't know. Just all the candy. <laughs> all the candy. All the a candy. couple of other songs that I definitely want to touch on that may not always get a lot of love. How Lucky You Are is a great song. Mm-hmm. And just I can't think of a song that is as that. I can't think of a song from like a quote unquote children's show that has that much irony, that has that much kind of biting a sense of humor to it. I think it's really smart. And once again, working in pastiche and yet still sounding like it belongs in the musical. Yeah. Uh, I I also, and it's a song that comes absolutely nowhere from Seuss at all. It's 100% Mm. of Lynn Aaron's Stephen Flaherty invention. It's, it's, it's good. I love the lyric. Why to cry a cloudy sky, an empty purse, a crazy universe. My philosophy is always things could be worse. And then usually that's when the cat in the hat sneezes on the planet of who. (laughs) exactly sorry i interrupted Uh, you though no 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 i'm those are great um i always am more than happy to pause for linear and lyric uh also solace salute i think gorgeous song it is a beautiful song uh, stephen flaherty really understands how music works and it's not i wouldn't say his scores are like complex in the way that we think of complex like it's not it's not um uh, what's i'm looking for it's not dissonant usually it's not very dense melodies that you have to listen to a couple of times to get you usually get it on the first listen but not in a way that feels simple it's uh economic but also very emotional and melodic at the same time yeah i, I was gonna yeah. say melodic but highly intellectual yeah and there is uh there is a versatility about him that makes it so impressive. Like to listen to something like Solace Lou, uh, I mean, I'm honestly this score in general, which is very eclectic as, as it is, you have amazing Maisie, Solace Lou, Oh, the things you can think, uh, how lucky you are, which all sound very different, but yet still somehow part of the same piece. And then you compare that to ragtime, which then you compare it to once on this Island. And then mm-hmm. you compare that to, I don't know, Anastasia where they are forced to go into the Disney mold. And, it's very impressive. And even when I don't always think they hit the mark, because oh, I don't want to like uh, hold them up to a pedestal too much while we praise Seussical. They have done some things that I have not enjoyed. I don't like the score to Rocky. And while I think uh, Lucky Stiff is a really delightful show, the movie is 
rough. Um, although I've I don't have seen the movie. Wow. The movie is about 75 minutes long. And I mean, I also don't know what the movie could have been if they hadn't have run out of money because mm. they did run out of money. And so there are some things that they just don't film and they animate instead. And oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. And just, and then well, some things just don't fit in a film as they would on stage. I honestly kind of, uh, how do I say this? Do I feel bad for them? Maybe I feel bad for them because I feel like the times that they've gone for big musicals, mm -hmm. they haven't been financially successful or artistically successful. Like they, Ragtime is beautiful and perfect as it is in, in many ways. It, it wasn't a financial hit, right? And it, it's, it never had the long Lion King Broadway run. Um, yeah. and, and then when they go, you know, for spectacle, like with Rocky or even My Favorite Year was huge and was another flop, Susical was a flop. And, and so then they go to like kind of more off-Broadway style writing for Man of No Importance or what is that one, uh, Loving Repeating? Is that the Gertrude Stein musical? Anyway. I've never heard of that one glorious ones all of those types of shows that it, it almost feels like they go uh enough with the money like the money gets in the way of our art let's let's yeah. bring it down to these bare bones but then sometimes i don't like those musicals as much it's uh, it's been really difficult for them to find their their uh what it, their niche i think in yeah. musical theater canon their corner of the sky if you will sure their, thank you well yeah well i mean the thing is with them They've never had the show that has been like the show, has been the show that critics liked, audiences liked, won them a Tony, and has run a good amount of years. The closest they got, I would say, is the original production of Once on This Island, where it opened and the critics really liked it and the Broadway community mm -hmm. loved it. And it mm -hmm. ran for a year, but it didn't make its money back. And they did lose the Tony. Uh, mm -hmm. They lost to Will Rogers Follies, which is a shame because while I do enjoy that show, Once on This Island is a much better score. And if you watch the Tony ceremony that year, uh, there used to be a time before the year 2000 where you could tell what was the show that the community loved. And <laughs> because it was usually in a Broadway theater and like it wasn't a lot of outsiders. It was usually like people who were a part of the season Within were the all community. in that room. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like yeah. that's the, the year of 1991, like Once on this Island gets the ovation that Will Rogers Follies doesn't get. Miss Saigon doesn't get it. Uh, the year of 1992 like while crazy for you was the big hit and everyone really liked it. Everyone loved falsettos. So when that cast came out to do their number, they were like superstars. But after once on this Island, you know, then they go into my favorite year, which doesn't get good reviews. And while, you know, it was at Lincoln center theater. So you can't necessarily say it was a flop because there wasn't a commercial venture limited run. It, yeah. limited run. It could have been extended. It could have run longer. There was definitely a hope that it would. Um, they do ragtime, which gets a lot of good reviews, but gets sort of a very, cold review from the times and can you uh, imagine can you imagine ragtime being written now and and people saying that it was too nostalgic like are yeah. you kidding me i well, can't even imagine i will say my history with ragtime is that you know like i remember when it came out and i didn't know much about it and then i read the book in high school while also listening to the score and i was like wow this score is really amazing i can't believe it only ran two years and then i saw the revival which was you know noted for being super stripped down oh we're just doing this show we're not going to impress you with all these pyrotechnics and a lot of people thought it was better 
and I watched it, I was like, I kind of see why this show doesn't click for everybody, especially towards the end, because it is three giant power ballads come to Jesus moments back to back to back in the last 15 minutes. And that's a lot. Like I listen, being in the car, listening to back to before, make them hear you wheels of a dream reprise in the car. Kill me now. I'm, I don't, it'll never get better than that in the show. When you're watching and you're like, it's a lot, it's, you know, it's similar like the critiques that Into the Woods sometimes gets, that it's very ballad heavy towards the end. But it is on a technical craft level, a phenomenal score and most likely the best score of the 90s. Uh, but even that, like they win the Tony and the show seems like it's a success at first, but then they lose Best Musical and they close a year later at a major loss, partly because Garth Trapinski just did not <laughs> was not truthful about what the, how, what, what it cost to run that show. And then they, as you said, like they do Seussical and then they do their off-Broadway runs where, you know, I think Man of No Importance is a lovely show that critics still were like, it's not really there. And they're like, what the fuck do we have to do? And they've never gotten that show since where all the critics went, yeah, this all clicks. And I'm hoping that they will at some point because there's they're just too good and even shows they have that don't click there's always a song there that's worth listening to um or moments that are worth listening to i think there was a time where they were trying to deal with heavier subject matter like ragtime like dessa rose that i don't think rose i totally forgot about that one there's some really beautiful stuff in there there is beautiful stuff in there, but considering the the subject matter it covers, it's a bit of a lighter touch on the score that is very Anson Flaherty that I don't think is right for the show. It's similar to how I talked about like Mac and Mabel, like the contrast of the lighthearted, good old fashioned sound of the Jerry Herman score mixed with the whole Mabel does cocaine constantly and dies tragically at 36 does not gel. And Desiree's for me is similar to that. That said, like Once on this Island, even Susical, I think those scores blend really nicely. And I don't, I wish that they got more due, which is a weird thing to say because they are so esteemed in the theater community and a lot of their songs have become standards. Um, and Susical now is like one of the most produced things in the country. So it's weird to call it underappreciated or any kind of thing close to it when it is so in the musical theater zeitgeist now. Like it's just so well known. Yeah. 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 But as it should should be. And and I guess that is one of the questions that I'm always really interested in is that does a show need to succeed on Broadway in order to be a great musical? I Uh, I don't think so. I think I think a lot of great musicals have not succeeded on Broadway. Uh, There's such a it's hard to judge a show's merit sometimes in the moment because we can get caught up in how well it is succeeding or how it's not succeeding, what the Tonys think, what the critics think, how audiences are responding. Time is really the best test of a show's merit. Uh, sometimes a show that people reviled gets reappraised later on. We saw it with Pal Joey that wasn't reviled, but like was thought of kind of coldly. And then over the years, critics and audiences rethought it. Sometimes a show that everyone really loves gets totally forgotten. Hello to gentlemen of Verona. But mm-hmm. I mean, when people talk about like, you know, a show, oh, audiences are standing and cheering every night. It's it's sold out and we have all these Tony nominations. I kind of sit back and I just go, let's wait. I'm going to wait five years and see what the discourse is because things change. And that's both for the for good and for bad. And for Susical ended up being for good. 
that yeah. things changed in their favor. And I'm happy also that things changed in favor for Fulmonti, where now we look back and we go, did we need to give producers 12 Tony Awards? Don't we think Fulmonti maybe could have gotten one of those? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But this year, the year that Susical closes is 2001, right? Which is. which also completely changes the Broadway scene. And and all I, I don't think we see shows like Jane Eyre for quite a few seasons because like who wants to go to the theater and see something kind of dark and uh and uh, everybody wanted to see mm. Mamma Mia. Like right, yeah. it was like, what do we produce in order to get the the tourism back in yeah. into the theater district? And the Millie episode we talked about that, like that's the argument of what won Millie the Tony over Your in Town was that while well, Your in Town was better constructed, better constructed, there was such a joy about Millie and such uh, a love letter to New York City that mm-hmm. Tony voters were like, sorry, I gotta go with my heart on this one. Yeah, well, and so then it makes me think, what if Susical came out after nine eleven? Yeah. Would would people have been like, it's joyful. This is exactly what our you know families need in order to revitalize the theater district. I don't know. I mean, this is all hypothesis, of course, yeah. but it's amazing how these major events, pandemic included, can really alter how we see specific works at specific times. Absolutely. Now, is it amazing Maisie or amazing Gertrude? <laughs> I mean, can it be both? Yeah, put your hands together. That's one of my favorite Joey lines. Girl from the copying place or jam, put your hands together. Hey. Hey. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, we touched on it for a second. The song Across the Universe. Not Across oh the my Universe. Gosh. Alone in the Universe. Alone across the universe, universe is the movie. Alone <laughs> in the Universe. We're back to Julie Tamer. Yes, absolutely. This is a gorgeous song. Yes. I remember seeing this show. I also, I mean, I, I was at an age where I was so right to play JoJo. And while I was so thrilled to be seeing Aaron Carter on stage, there was a part of me that thought I could do this better. Yeah. But get off the stage. You get off the stage, Aaron Carter, A.A. Ron mm-hmm. Carter, and let me do Alone in the Universe. I listened to Anthony What's His Face on my cast recording numerous times and sang along with him. And I'm like, I have the vocal stamina. I can do it. Mm-hmm. But listening to it now just makes me misty eyed and it's i mean it's a beautiful song it's so earnest because it starts while it is a very sad first half because the melody is so lullaby like almost it doesn't sound lethargic or preachy it's just very matter-of-factly and then it builds this gorgeous duet with the two of them of people finding a connection and then of course as i mentioned earlier bringing it back around because we have the we have the bridge of alone in the universe where Horton and Jojo sing, you know, that they'll be okay in the end because they have wings. Yes, they can fly. And they mean that metaphorically speaking. So for Gertrude McFuzz to take her iconic self and bring those words back around and mean them literally that she will help co-parent said elephant bird. I'll teach him earth. You, uh, you teach him earth. I'll teach him sky. The kids are all right. You know, the kids are all right. <laughs> Yes, they are. We are in good hands. Um, I also just want to say that Having a Hunch is the one song that I always skip. I couldn't sing you that song if my life depended on it. And I've listened to the score a lot. Yeah. Also, the the Butter Side Up song with the general. I always skip that, too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. The song has that's something that That's something. I think those are things to be enjoyed in the theater. 
Sure. I mean, we haven't even touched on Biggest Blame Fool. We haven't touched oh my on gosh. People versus Horton, People versus Horton the Elephant, uh, with Anne Harada giving that He's amazing that opening oil. solo. Yes. Yeah. And then yeah. Was that a, a bees on that oil? Is that the mm-hmm. yeah? Oh, God, so good. I mean, Biggest Blame Fool is such a phenomenal production number. It's first of all, it's great storytelling. It builds. It has levels. Everyone's shown in some way. I also love that this show has numerous vocal types, just like the Wickersham brothers, tenor, baritone, bass, all mm-hmm. showcased, blending together. It's great. Angle is the is the lowest of the three. Is that the mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, he's like he's slow. Yeah, he's. I, I, he just has this like weird part of his voice that he can just shift into because like i mean when you listen to the original cast recording of forever plaid and he's uh-huh. doing um what was it from rags to riches he's like singing the high g but then he's also like earlier in the show doing the crazy low notes in 16 tons it's insane he's just kind of a freak of a nature that way oh, we love it you love to see it i mean there's yeah there's just so much to talk about but we don't have enough time to do it we have to start wrapping things up but yeah. At so some many, point, we'll talk about it. But, but like, there, these are amazing gems. Yeah. And we talked a lot about sort of the origins and then the benefits and the legacy of this show. So we're, we're, I think we still did solid, even if we didn't go as in-depth with this show as I do with Sideshow. But Lord knows we need a shorter <laughs> episode after the Sideshow episode. My God, did Adam and I talk forever. So three questions <laughs> for you, Jeff. First question Please. is, over, under, or estimated? Do you think Seussical is overestimated, underestimated, or properly estimated? Ooh, uh, I think this is a time question. Uh, depends on like when you're asking the question. I think now it's properly estimated based okay. on how much it gets produced. Um, I still think that it's underestimated in terms of the amount of in- ingenuity and theatrical creativity that we as artists can bring to it and that's what i would encourage people who might be listening who are producing a a, a Seussical junior show with their you know summer camps whatever mm-hmm. it might be we can dig deeper i think we owe it to mr theater geisel to do it i agree it's it's interesting watching videos of school productions and regional productions now on youtube and like how literal the designs are how like mm-hmm. just very much like Seuss on stage. I'm um, like, we can, we can go even further. Well, uh, when you're question. beginning a show that literally says, Oh, the things you can think you yeah. don't stop at the first thought you have about how to stage the show. You just, you can't, it's like going against everything you're trying to put on stage. And that is what Jeff has to say to all of you. Next question, Jeff, including myself, including yourself, uh, the missing link. Is there anything missing in the show, Seussical, that you think would uh, snap some things into place? Maybe some uh, Ooh, various that's a fun questions. Parts. Yeah. Um, I. It it is a tricky uh, needle to thread, hmm. weaving all of these stories in and out, and I do think that the places where the show gets dark are are interesting i i don't love the first hack first half of the second act yeah um so there might be something there that i think is missing yeah i think i would i would want to look at the script of the full version that's currently licensed where it's all all the you know material available and then just look for ways to streamline it which you could argue maybe susical junior susical 90 minutes maybe does but i feel like 
when once it gets down to 90 minutes, it's a little too short, a little too skimpy. I feel like a solid hour and 45 is like really the way to go. Yeah. But, well, and, and I mean, junior is meant for a completely different purpose than, you know. Yeah, I know. But some people do the junior version because it's shorter and they think short for and light for Seuss. So I don't know. I'm I want to see everything that's made available and then I want to pick and choose as I see fit. He'll do he'll just do like three nights in a row of going to see all the different Seussicals. Yeah, exactly. It's like seeing Mystery of Edwin Drood and find, and having different murderers each night. Beautiful. Beautiful. Last question. Yes. Castaway. Who would you like to see in a production of Seussical? Ooh, another fun question. Mm. <clears throat> well, I'm just going to say it. I want to see Andrea Martin play, come back and do Cat in the Hat. I want to. Yeah. I want to see. I want to see a little bit of magic that was seen in that first workshop. So, yeah. uh, if there's any way we can do another workshop in Toronto with Andrew Martin playing the can, that I'm down. I'm into it. Do you do you believe JoJo should be played by an actual child or should it be a small adult? I I like the child thing. I because the more that I am reminded that. Horton and Jojo are so on kind of different sides of the universe and yet they all feel they both feel alone and that's what they actually have in common the better Mm -hmm. yeah I don't usually like children on my stage when I see them on there I'm like get off get out of here get out of my musical but because very rarely do I find a child a child's performance to be worth it I mean I again can count on like one hand the number of children's performances I've seen live where I'm like yeah no that works that's great good for you but I do think it is important for Seussical to have that energy to it. Uh, this is actually the third musical we've covered on this series that's been at the Richard Rogers, and the second at the Richard Rogers with a child in it. Uh, first was Working, where they had the mm. Newsboy song, and I'm like, get that crap out of here. Need to be a Newsboy. Get out of my life, that song. And then Sideshow at the Richard Rogers, and now this show. I think this is the last one at the Rogers we are covering on this series. Richard Rogers Theater is actually my favorite Broadway house. I love that theater a lot. It's a great theater. It Fun fact, it has the most best musical winners of any Broadway house. Really? That's yep. cool. Yeah. Hamilton in the Heights, 1776, Guys and Dolls, How to Succeed, Raisin, Redhead, and Nine. Redhead. Wow. Redhead. That's really cool. Well done. Yeah. I I'm... learned that while being a tour guide. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. The first time I went to that theater was Steel Pier. Steel Pier. I would have liked to see that show live. I think the first show I saw there, I know, I know. The first show I saw there was Lamb Chop on Broadway and then Footloose. Oh my gosh. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> was, was, uh, what's her bucket in it? Um, uh, Sherry Perry? Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I think it was like a week engagement she was doing. I remember sitting in the mezzanine and then I remember being in the ladies' room with my mom. That's all I remember from that show. Cute. Yeah. Adorable. I have a weird memory. I remember where I sat for every show I saw. Yeah, I get that. I remember yeah. where I got every CD in my like CD collection. That's, That's amazing. It's a similar, similar yeah. brain area. Uh, what were we talking on before that, though? Uh, we were talking about casting. You want to see Andrea Martin, which I totally get. Yes, and then you asked... Children and musicals. Children and musicals, right. Oh, here we go. One <laughs> production I saw of Susical took a book, took a page out of the ragtime book. And you know, when mm-hmm. like Cole House the third comes running out at the very end and we're all mm-hmm. like a mess. Yeah. When the egg broke open, 
there was a little itty bitty child wearing both wings and elephant ears and it was the cutest thing i've ever seen in my life that okay if the and child... i'm not talking like and i'm not talking like a child that's you know seven and is a professional and we all know it's probably really annoying backstage this was like a three-year-old who had been patient and sitting in that egg <laughs> that is a and, miracle and then it broke open and we were all like like gasped the entire audience gasped it was the most successful thing about the production i would have gasped just at the idea that that child sat still all that time that's exactly yeah we were not expecting it there was no <laughs> way there was a child there no there could never but be. he was and he was adorable oh that's so sweet yeah see okay i don't i feel like there's this i've created this narrative that i hate children i don't hate <laughs> children i don't hate them i've i've had to teach them a lot and i find them annoying a lot of the times but when a child is kind and respectful and and not trying to be smarter than the like adults are with i think they're actually really great um you know it's so oftentimes like when a child gets to a certain age they start when they learn about agency and that their words can mean something and that uh they can start having conversations that they can say words and someone will respond to them they start them like talking to like your equals and i'm like madam sir you are half my size your brain is a third of the size of mine no 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 do not come for me unless i twirl for you so yeah yeah no it's true but i i always have to remind myself that kind of the only job that a child has is to be annoying you know like it's part of it's part and i'm sure i was an annoying child are you kidding me with 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 my memory of like actually oh you did that yeah Actually, I just Dad, cried all the time. Um, you don't understand the complexities of uh, awarding the best original score, Tony. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but we are like at that age, just exploring boundaries and waiting for somebody to show us where they are. So, yeah. like that—that's all it is. That's really all. That's all. It. That's true. That's fair. I think it's more of a reflection on if their parents are crappy. I don't. I won't like the kid. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. There are a lot of people who shouldn't be parents, but they go, oh, I want a mini me out there. And I'm like, no, the world doesn't Won't need that a mini be you. fun. Get a dog. Get a yeah, dog. Get a, that'll, be like, get a, that'll be fun. Get a too. picture of yourself and minimize it. And that's your mini you. You have it everywhere you go. Who cares? Maybe Don't make a person. Maybe that's what Instagram filters are good for. So, you know, you can see what you and your partner would create if you yeah. did. But then you don't have to because you just have the post. Sometimes you're just a Maisie LaBird and you shouldn't have children. You know what I mean? Mm. And that's okay. And that's okay. Jeff, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for coming on. My gosh, my pleasure. Um, Thank you for inviting me. Of course, all the time. If you want people to find you, where can they find you? I am on the social medias. Um, but don't worry about following me. Just go to uh, my podcast, a musical theater podcast. We're on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, a musical podcast. Um, having a great time loving on this wonderful art form that allows us to, you know, connect with each other. I I'm, have met you solely because of the musical theater art form. And so I'm very grateful. Oh, thank you, Jeff. That's very sweet. You can tell Jeff does not live in New York because he is just very kind and earnest and and means what he says. Um, 
Stop if it. you want to follow me, y'all, you know where to find me. I'm on Instagram and Instagram only at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, give us a rating, give us a review, uh, like, subscribe, tell your friends. I have been finding more reviews of the pod on not Apple, but other sites. Because the, now the downside of the pod being available literally anywhere you listen to podcasts is that sometimes people review it on those sites. So Chartable, mm. I found some reviews. Um, and then I just found this review on Audible from February. So I, I want to apologize to um, MS who wrote this review, but I just found it two days ago. So <clears throat> cue Light in the Piazza music. Five stars. Fun. I enjoy this podcast. My name is Matt too, and I also work in theater and truly enjoy Matt's opinions and his passion for the art. Keep it up. Love it. Thank you, MS. I really appreciate that. I like that your name is Matt as well. Our parents named as well. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Yay, Matt's. Yes. Uh, if you have Apple Podcasts, though, rate, review, and subscribe on that one as well, because I, that's that helps with the algorithm a great deal on Apple. We are slaves to it. We are victims of it, but we have to always. When Britney Spears wrote the song or performed the song, I should say, Slave for You, it was about Apple Podcasts and the algorithm. So that there you snake go. around her neck was that Tim snake Cook. Snake around. That's. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, geez. Oh, God. Okay. I can't. If I keep going, I'll never stop. So I'm going to close this up now. Uh, Jeff, we close out every episode with the Broadway Diva. Now we mm. have done, we have done Michelle Pock. Okay. Uh, we have done Andrea Martin. So mm. I'm trying to think who we can do that is Susical related uh, to close this out. We could do Kathy Rigby. We could mm-hmm. do Rosie O'Donnell. Mm-hmm. We could do Sharon Wilkins. Uh, we could do Janine LaMotta. We've actually done Anne Harada. Uh, we could do Natasha Diaz. We could do Sarah Gettelfinger. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure we could. Uh, I'm not sure there would be another show that would be as appropriate for Janine Lamana as this show. So maybe we should do her. I guess we should do her. Yeah. I'm, I don't know if she has. If she's on any of their cast recordings. No, she's on the Sweet Charity cast recording mm-hmm. uh, with Christine, Al- Christine Applegate. Does she has? Does she have like a decent solo on that? Yeah, no, she because she does. Nikki or Helene. She's just... uh Lara, Lara Benanti's uh understudy in swing. Okay. Okay, right? versatile Janine. Wasn't she also, I think, replaced in Thrag Time, right? She was the Evelyn Nesbitt replacement, I believe. Ooh, that would make sense. I she would yeah. have an amazing we. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yes. Anyone who doesn't know Ragtime, that sentence was just very strange. But anyone who yeah. knows Ragtime felt they very completely understand. What I mean. Yeah. You and I, I think you and I connect in a good way because we've when we talk about what would be good about certain people's performances, we narrow in on a very specific thing. We don't. And it's never the thing. They have people this talk about. one skill that is probably not important at all to the role. But boy, oh, boy, would I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. My friend Allie, who everyone will have just turned on the smile episode. I think we talked about it once on a previous episode when she got cast as Eponine and Les Mis, my response was, that'll be great. You have amazing Eponine hair. And she took a moment and she was like, I don't, she, she's like, it took me a second to realize what you meant. And then I went, I do have great Eponine hair. Actually, I was you like, know what? You're right. It's going to look yeah. awesome underneath that little cap, the cap. Oh yeah. When you take off the cap and your hair flows for on my own, I'm like, yeah, that's that's you have Eponine hair, yeah. but yeah, that is, that's, that's, that's us. That's in a important. It's very important. Okay, so Janine Lamana, we're going to do Janine Lamana. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, check us back next week when we cover. 
depending on scheduling of uh, next week, either next week's going to be on Legally Blonde or it's going mm-hmm. to be a Sondheim retrospective. Uh, Ooh, one of the two options. Yeah, it's one of the two, either Sondheim, it's either Legally Blonde, then Sondheim, or Sondheim, then Legally Blonde. So something to, you know, get excited about and on on your toes about for next Thursday. Uh, And yeah, that's it. Have a great week, everybody. And thank you, Jeff. And uh, here is Janine. Take us away, girl. Bye. When I sit at my desk on the 41st floor in my copy of a copy of a copy of Dior, I'll receive big tycoons and I'll point to a chair. I'll say, honey, while you're waiting, how would you like to put it down over there? Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.